Good morning. Thank you for paddling over and joining us for worship. For the first time in my life in Southern California, as in ministry in Southern California, I thought, I wonder if I should say something via social media or the church-wide email about the weather. My pastor friends in New England do that all the time. They've actually set up systems to tell people whether they're even going to have church because the roads get icy and, you know, we don't want anybody getting hurt or spending their afternoon in a ditch instead of a pew. But we, for the first time, have to consider the weather. Isn't it great? I don't know if you can see under the lights, you know, exercise caution and wisdom because you're being taught the Bible this morning by a man who clearly doesn't know enough to get in out of the rain. Um, I got caught on the other side of campus and it gusted and I'm feeling a little soggy. Hopefully that's not distracting. I grew up in the high desert of Mexico in the city of Chihuahua, Chihuahua, a city so nice they named it twice. <laughs> Legend says that that is where the little dogs come from, but don't hold that against us if, if you don't like those particular little dogs. You've heard me talk about that a million times, and people probably don't… It would be hard for you to have an accurate picture of what that was like growing up. Um, you know, we're, we're just not… If you haven't lived outside of the country, all kinds of images come to mind, I'm sure, of what that might be like. But I've told people for years, it was like Mayberry in Spanish. <laughs> it was awesome. I was one of those kids who grew up going about probably half a mile to a vacant lot to play with the rule that when the streetlights came on, it was time to start wrapping up the game. Anybody else grow up like that? Kids today have no idea what we're talking about. Looking, I, I visited my childhood home and went to that vacant lot, you know, and now with parents' eyes, I thought to myself, you know, this vacant lot looks not like a playground, but like the scene of the crime, right? This, this looks like the opening credits of a documentary filmed in black and white of little Bruce Garner who disappeared one day after, after playing soccer with his friends in this vacant lot, but it was wonderful. I grew up right in the middle of the middle class of Mexico. I was surrounded by poverty. My neighbors across the street growing up were, were obviously poor, but my life was probably very much like your own. It wasn't until I became a missionary in my own right and moved back to Mexico with Sharice and, and one of the boys, Evan was born there, that I saw the worst poverty that Mexico has to offer. A childhood friend of mine had walked away from the, his father's expectations to become a lawyer like, like his dad was, and instead become a pastor. He was, like so many missionaries, he was called to do that kind of work by a mission trip. He was growing up with me right in the middle of the middle class, but started going up in the mountains to these desperately poor villages where people lived as subsistence farmers. In other words, they worked the land not to be tycoons, but to have just enough to eat. And I went with him once into a lady's home. When I say home, it wasn't much bigger than the edge of this piano to that side of the stage, maybe to that wall over there. Very small place, no electricity, no running water little gas campfire style stove, and I was only in there for a moment because I was just helping carry something heavy into her house that she needed. That's why it was so humbling when she saw us coming and her 
you know, dark brown face kind of split into this brilliant, beautiful grin, and she reached off the little stove, grabbed a napkin, and grabbed a hot tortilla right off the stove, offered it to me. It's one of the most generous gifts I've ever been given. I've been given things that are far more expensive, probably nothing that was so immediately meaningful, because I looked past her over her shoulder and saw that the little stack, there might have been 12 or 20 tortillas, That's, that, was, that was the day's supply, and I was going to take one of them. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience, I hesitated a little bit, and her eyes flashed a little bit like, you're not going to refuse this, are you? And I thought to myself, no, I'm not. I'm thrilled. This is awesome. This is a beautiful moment of one person showing kindness to another. Tasty, too. That emotional and intellectual experience that I had on this, in the Sierra Madre Mountains of Chihuahua was probably something akin to what Paul was feeling as he wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Will you look there, please, in your, in your Bible? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to study the Bible a little bit together today. This translation I'm using, the English standard, is very, very accurate, very faithful to the Greek that this was written in. And in an effort to be clear and accurate, it's a little clunky, too, in this passage. There's a couple verses that you might need to look at a second or third time and kind of parse Paul's language and see what he's talking about, and it's worth the effort. And I'll be asking you a few questions as we go because what Paul's talking about here is, is what I experienced on that mountaintop, in that little home. He's talking about giving that is not only ordinary giving, but that is filled with grace. He's talking about the amazing grace of people who have been crushed by poverty, who have no reason, humanly speaking, to give, who on the contrary have every reason to expect somebody to give to them, who had such a work of God in their lives that they became not only givers but generous givers, eager givers, insistent givers. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. You'll see what I mean. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. And already, because of distance and culture, we're a little bit lost. Macedonia is not something we immediately recognize. But you know these churches if you've read a little bit of the Bible. The churches of the province of Macedonia are the churches of Philippi and Thessalonica, also likely the church of Berea. Philippi and Thessalonica have letters written to them by Paul, which are in your New Testament. If you've read Philippians or either of the letters of the Thessalonians, those are the churches of Macedonia. And what does Paul tell you in verse 1 happened there? What showed up? The grace of God was given to them. God graciously showed up and did something among those churches. And here it is, verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You will seldom see those words together in one sentence. Paul says that the churches of Macedonia, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea were overwhelmed by suffering. 
Look at the beginning of verse 2. They are in a severe test of affliction. If I read the letters, I learn that those churches were persecuted. When they turned, as Paul wrote the Thessalonians, from idols to the living God, the gospel does, did for them what it often does across the world. It infuriated the people who lived around them. The people who felt lived around them felt judged, felt condemned, felt betrayed culturally, religiously, and persecution broke out and evidently put them not only in a great deal of trouble, but it, it resulted in, Paul says, their extreme poverty. And his Greek is really picturesque. It's down to the depths of poverty. It was the kind of poverty that I saw on the mountain. It wasn't the poverty of not knowing how you're going to fix the second car, but the kind of poverty that says that you don't know exactly how you're going to eat. They were in suffering. They were in extreme poverty, but there was also something that was abundant there. Do you see it? Again, we're, I know it's supposed to be a monologue, but I want to talk to you a little bit. Along with the suffering and along with the poverty, there was something else. What did they experience? Joy, because they had Jesus. And it made all the difference. It gave them an eternal perspective, evidently, and all of that, Paul says, resulted, is, resulted in an overflowing in a wealth of generosity on their part. In other words, suffering and extreme poverty met by joy made generosity bubble up and spill over, and they were generous, not in their spirit alone, but in their giving. Verse 3, for they gave according to their means as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Some radical stuff. You understand what Paul's saying here? Paul had written the Corinthians, and we were there last week. He wrote them in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 and 2, how they were to be Christian givers. His, his advice was very simple. He said, each one of you should set something aside in keeping with your income and give it on the first day of the week. As God prospers you, as you get paid, as you have income, set a portion of that aside, bring it on Sunday on the first day of the week, and in your worship gathering, give it then so that there's no last-minute collections. And Paul says that these Macedonian believers... And this is, this is as surprising a verse as you'll ever read. Verse 4, they begged earnestly for the favor of taking part in that relief. The saints is a reference to these poor believers in Jerusalem who have been pushed to the edge of their own livelihood by persecution way back in Jerusalem. And Paul says, here's the grace of God working in the Macedonian believers. They begged to give an offering. Now, if you're like me, you've been in church quite a bit. I was one of those babies that was born, and as soon as it was safe to take me out of the hospital, they put me in the church nursery. To the dismay of many a nursery worker, I assure you, I was brutal. That's why I'm an only child, but that's another story. Now, that's not speculation. That's what my parents told me, um, which created its own problem that anyway, uh, we're not doing therapy for me. I'm just telling you. I was in church early. Okay? And in all that time in church, I've never had anybody beg to give an offering. I've never seen the kind of eagerness expressed here. Let me ask you, those of you who've been in church for years, you ever heard a cheer at the offering time? Me neither. 
But look at the intensity here. These poor believers, Paul says, they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor. Are you kidding me? What kind of Christians are these? Look at the nature of their giving. Again, we're studying the Bible together. It says in verse 3 that they gave according to their means. In other words, they gave something in keeping with what little they had, but then he makes it radical. He says, and they gave what? They gave beyond their means. In other words, Paul probably had an experience, as I had as a missionary, never in the city churches, always in the rural churches, in the mountains, where I'm looking at very poor people give generously, thinking to myself, this, this seems unreasonable. And they're going home to homes with no electricity. One church had one truck, one vehicle for the entire congregation, and it started with a screwdriver. That kind of poverty. And that little congregation, the first year they understood the need to give to foreign missions, a church that met in an adobe house gave $2,000 to send overseas much of it to a missionary in Spain who lived far above their own standard of living. This is, Paul says, this is the grace of God at work in them. What is amazing about giving, generous giving, giving like this shows that God is working in our lives. Generous giving, not giving from as, a, as an obligation or giving in a way that you'll never miss it, but generous giving shows that the grace of God is active in our lives because we're never more like God than when we give. That's the heart of the gospel. The most well-known verse in the Bible tells us the nature, the character of our Heavenly Father. John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that He gave. It's right there. You'll see it in this passage again. The nature of love is giving. It's an old truism, but it's no less factual. You can give without loving, but you can't love without giving. And what God is trying to produce in the hearts of His children are believers who trust God and give to God the way these Macedonians did. Gracious giving, generous giving, eager giving that said to Paul, please let us help. If he was surprised, and evidently he was, it must seem that he went in with the expectation that maybe an offering should be coming their way, not going out from them. See, if, if there's no love in the giving, there are always perfectly good reasons not to give. But parents who love their children know quite well that love finds a way. If, you, if love is in the heart, you never ask, do I have to? No loving parent I ever know has ever grown and said, ah, man, it's the kid's birthday again. I guess we should get something. You might have felt stress and anxiety wondering how you were going to figure it out, what you were going to do without, but the nature of love is that love gives. That's what Paul is admiring here. You can't compel that kind of giving. You ever seen a child give without love? All the time. Share with your little brother. Ah. Share with your little brother. No. And eventually you take possession of the thing, but he didn't give it. You just compelled it. 
Compliance and obedience aren't the same thing. What causes Paul's admiration, what, it, what makes him write this is that he has seen the grace of God working in their lives, and the reason is in verse 5. He says, they did this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Verse 5 is as important a verse in this chapter as any. The reason the Macedonians were generous, sacrificial, insistent givers is they had already given themselves to God, so letting loose of their money was no problem at all. It was not only a privilege, it was something they insisted upon. If I can put it to you very practically, if God has you, He'll have your money. And whatever else you say, if God doesn't have control of your money, He doesn't have control of you. In your life, there's a room that you have barred and locked to Him and said to Him, Lord, this is mine. And there's nothing more human, and it's exacerbated here in the United States because of our culture, to think that what we have is ours. And it's not. It's all from Him. Every single thing you have, the very breath you've been taking to be as part of this worship service, the talent and the skill and the diligence, the hard work that have given you success and prospered you financially, it all comes from the Lord. It's His power, it's His grace, it's His decision that lets you earn in the first place, and it can be removed in a moment. I can't tell you how many times as a pastor it's one of the most sobering and things that pushes me to personal reflection more than anything else. I've gone to a hospital and seen a once brilliant person reduced to needing around-the-clock care, and it happens in a moment. It's all grace. It's all of God. Every single bit of it comes from Him. We're not owners. We're just managers. We don't own anything because it will all be taken from us someday and we will give an account for everything that passes through our hands. The Macedonians had broken through somehow to this spiritual transaction. They said, Lord, we are yours. So when Paul showed up, showed up talking about the poor in Jerusalem, they said, let us help. And he must have had a kind of honest missionary conversation like, folks, are you sure? We were thinking of putting you on the list. No, we want to help. Look at, the, look at the clarity of Scripture. It says they begged. It's amazing. Why is it happening? Because God is at work in their lives. In verse 7, uh, verse 8 says, accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. In other words, you've been, you'll see it in a moment, you've been talking about participating, so we're sending Titus to you to finish your good intentions of giving this offering, and verse 7 is huge. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, here's an imperative. See that you excel in this act of grace also. That's what I, say, that's what I mean when I say the translation's a little cumbersome. What's Paul saying? Paul says, you're good at everything. The church of Corinth lacks nothing. 
you are good. That's what it means to excel. You stand out. You're an outlier in many spiritual areas. You have faith. You have speech. You have knowledge. You're earnest, and there's love between us. And then he says, just as you are good at, you excel in faith, speech, knowledge, and earnestness, make sure that you excel also in the act of giving. And that's a very challenging verse. Every once in a while, not often, but sometimes on the porch, someone will say to me something like, man, that was a tough sermon. And just let me bring you into my study for a moment. If you felt anything in Scripture grab you and convict you and say, that's for you and you need to make a course correction, let me assure you it worked me over in my office first. As God is my witness and in prayer before Him, I never try to stand at an arm's length from these sermons and think about things that you should know and you should do. It speaks to me first. And this verse, verse 7, was the one that took me behind the woodshed as I studied because I've asked God for more faith many times. Have you? I have many times asked God for more and more excellent speech. God, I'm going to preach. I'm going to counsel. I'm going to officiate a funeral. I'm going to meet someone with a difficult situation. Give me speech. Give me knowledge. Have you ever asked God for the right words? Ever asked Him for more faith? Ever asked Him to be more for your faith and your life with Him to be more earnest? Have you ever asked him to make you an excellent giver? That's harder, isn't it? And that's exactly what Paul is telling the Corinthians to do. They're not like the Macedonians. They're a church at ease. They're a church with wealth. They evidently are a church that is enjoying a good time. They have many spiritual gifts. And Paul says, you're good at many things. Make sure that you're also great. Make sure that you excel in the grace of giving. What that means is we can get better at giving. Every single one of us probably can get better at it. How? Most of us can be better givers. Ask God for help. If you want to pray Jesus-like prayers that are God-sized, that enter fully into the life of the kingdom, say, Father, in accordance with your word, you've given me faith. I've had a little speech. I have some knowledge. I'm pretty sincere. I have love for other Christians. Make me an excellent giver. Teach me to be generous. And in my office this week, as I pondered that this is the imperative, this is what Scripture says needs to happen in the life of Christians, make sure that you excel in the grace of giving, I thought to myself, my reluctance to pray that prayer shows how hard the battle is. Because what God is after is generosity and wholeheartedness. I know that because of what He says next. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. Let's look carefully at verse 9, because that's what motivates the passage. Verse 9 says that we became rich at the cost of what? His poverty. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus. It says that though He was 
Look carefully at it. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Anytime you're reading a verse like this, ask yourself simply a question like this. How did Jesus become poor? I know it's supposed to be a monologue and it's a dialogue. How did Jesus become poor? He was born as a man. See, that's poverty beyond our comprehension because you and I have only existed as we are as human beings. We've always been localized in time and space. We have a beginning and we know we have, we'll have an end. I came to be in a little town in Texas. I drew my first conscious breaths in Mexico. That's my story. That's all I've ever known. It's literally unfathomable to think of Jesus, who is, according to the Gospel of John, the creator of all things. John says, without Jesus, nothing that was made was made without Him. Everything that was made, Scripture tells us, is through Him and for Him. Every single thing, including you, was made by Jesus Christ and made to serve Him and glorify Him. And yet, because of love, at a specific time in history, he reduced himself, quite literally, to existence like this. And he didn't come as a king. The really unfathomable reduction is from eternal God to man on earth, but having become a man on earth, Paul says in Philippians, he took the form of a servant and humbled himself and was obedient to God all the way to the cross so that he was killed, the Creator was killed by the creation. And wicked men lied and blasphemed and spit and cursed and beat and slaughtered their Creator. Wow, that's the gospel. If you're new in church and you're not too sure about all this giving, Look at Jesus. Look at this verse. This is the gospel. It's right in the middle of a practical instruction for all disciples of Jesus to be generous because Jesus was generous. But your generosity can wait. It's important, but it can wait. What matters is that you come to saving faith in Christ. That's why this verse is here. It is His grace, His generosity that motivates our own. Because, folks… It's only giving that turns good intentions into good deeds. You see, Jesus didn't stand in a profession of generosity. He actually did it. That's what Paul says next. Verse 10, in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Kind of dense, isn't it? What's Paul talking about? Look carefully at it. What's he telling them? You've been thinking about this. You've been sincere about this. You've desired to do this for how long? For a year. You've had good intentions for a year. Ever had good intentions for a while and never gotten around to it? I'm absolutely brutal with thank you notes. My mother would be so ashamed. My mother raised me to write thank you notes, and sometimes just out of sheer forgetfulness and stupidity, I'll put it off and put it off, and I don't have a stamp, and I don't have a card, and who has a pen and paper anymore anyway? Wouldn't an email be good enough, Mom? No, write the note, okay? And good intentions just get 
put off. In the Corinthians case, they've had this good intention, this loving desire to help the Christians in Jerusalem for a year. What's the problem? What's happening in Jerusalem? They're starving. And when it comes to physical needs, when it comes to actual, the brutal realities of life, good intentions aren't enough. So, Paul says, verse 11, so now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it, in other words, wanting to do it, may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Listen to the Bible's wisdom and practicality and honestness about giving. For if the readiness is there, then it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Look carefully at verse 12. Paul says, if the readiness is there, if you really want to do it, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. That's a helpful direction. Every once in a while, there will be a huckster, usually in mass media, often on TV and a particular network, saying that if you can't give, you should take out a loan. You should go into debt. Biblical nonsense, and here it is. Paul's saying, he's being very practical, I'm not asking you to give what you don't have. God has blessed you. Give from what you do. If the heart is there, then your giving from what God has given you is acceptable and pleasing to God. The Macedonian miracle is they gave not only from what they had, but they gave unreasonably, sacrificially. They gave in a way that reminds us of God. Paul says, I'm not even setting the standard there. Just give from what God has already given you. Because giving turns good intentions into good deeds. See, the issue is starvation. Somebody is in actual physical peril. It's the same in our day. I've never been happier, more pleased, more delighted as your pastor than I was this Christmas season as you gave overwhelmingly with tremendous generosity to build an orphanage in Mexico. See, we made an actual deposit with real money to pay an actual architect who's now drawn the plans and last week sent us pictures of the three-dimensional renderings of what the thing is actually going to look like. It's happening, and it didn't happen with good intentions. It happened because of good deeds. You made it happen. You took from what God had given you, and you made the grace of God appear in the lives of these kids. That happens in every facet of this church, not only overseas, but right from this corner, all through our community. It's the actual doing of it that makes it come into life to make a difference. In other words, you you have to do it. And the Corinthians have done, I'm sure, for good reasons, with good explanations, they've put it off for a year. The last part of this verse, the last part of this passage in verse 15, Paul quotes from the Exodus experience and reminds them of the story where the Israelites went out to gather manna. Some gathered more than others, some gathered just a little bit, but the community shared and God's people's needs were met. What God wanted to happen, happened because they went out and gathered and they shared. That's why Paul says, I'm not trying to move the burden off of them and put it on you. Just be generous, be equitable, and God will provide for the churches in both of these places. 
I think, church, if I can be really practical, that's why a specific percentage of giving is never mentioned in the New Testament. The tithe is mentioned over and over in the Old Testament. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and commended them for tithing. He said, you do this and you should. Why isn't a specific proportion mentioned in the New Testament to invite you into a life of generosity? Let me be very practical, and I'll make some figures up. They're purely by matter of illustration. A single mother who gives or tithes, who fearfully moves the decimal point backward and proportions out her tithe, does so with tremendous faith. And the check she gives may not impress anybody, but it represents generosity that delights God. Whereas another family who has been blessed extraordinarily with wealth, who earns not on the hourly, but who has genuine wealth and maybe to make something up, has income in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, for that situation, moving the decimal point backward represents giving, and it is pleasing to God, but there's no sacrifice in it. I think that's why the percentages are not mentioned in the New Testament. What God is inviting His people into is something much more relational, much more adventurous, something that takes more faith. To start with what God has given you, consider what you have in your hands, and ask yourself not the question of obligation, how much do I have to, but ask yourself the question of love, how much can I? That's what was happening in Macedonia. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, I want you to get better at this. I want you to excel at it because when you do, you'll see that God, and you'll see and prove that God is working in your lives, and you're going to make God's grace visible. That's what giving always does. It moves it out of the realm of profession and confession of faith and makes it a living, breathing, life-changing, eternity-altering, soul-saving reality for the recipients of the gift. We're blessed more than most. There are people in this congregation who are desperately poor. There are some who have been very blessed financially. But as a congregation, as a body, we are blessed more than most. We stand kind of at the top of the peak in terms of human church history, of people who have been greatly blessed by God. My invitation to you is to listen to what this passage says and do the adventurous, relational, Jesus-honoring thing. Take it up with Him and ask yourself not how much must I, but how much can I and make the grace of God visible in your life for the benefit of other people. Let's pray together, shall we? Talk to him about it right now. If you're not in the habit of giving, take it up with Jesus if you know how to pray. If you don't know how to pray, maybe something like this, Lord, I've heard this, I've read it in Your Word right in front of me. Show me what to do about this. Maybe you're like me, this is a well-worn habit. Maybe for you it's a matter not of settling but of excelling, not just moving a decimal point back but making big plans for the future. I know Christians who arrange their estates 
so that at the end of their lives, the greatest gifts they've ever made are made after their death. I know other people, and you'll hear about that next week, who gave with such fear that they said, I almost ran the usher down and tackled him. You take it up with Jesus. There's no pressure. There's no human pressure being exerted upon you. All I've tried to do this morning is verse by verse, verse 1 through 15, lay out what Scripture says. It is grace that is at work when a Christian really gives. Not when he just happens to throw something in, do a little something. No, when he really gives, when he considers what God has given him and he gives proportionately, that's God at work. That's God's grace in your life. That's God inviting you to go further, to be excellent at it. That's God helping you make His grace visible to other human beings who are in need of Him. Talk to Him about it and we'll pray. Lord, teach us to give as You gave. Teach us to love as You loved. Teach us to be generous as You are generous. Lord, I pray for the person who has the hardest time with this. Would you give them comfort and grace and confidence to trust you for the first time maybe with this issue and start them on this wonderful adventure of taking what you give and giving some of it back and praying and hoping and wondering and then seeing you provide time after time, seeing you save people, put families back together, rescue orphans off the street, all the extraordinary things, Lord, you do through the local church. You do that through something as simple and ordinary as our faithful, generous giving. We love you, we thank you, and we give you this offering, praying for the same kind of spirit that characterized the church in Philippi, eager, insistent. Receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.